The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus 22, verses 21 through 24, and Exodus 23, 9. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with a sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you. Thank you for giving us a reason to gather this morning. And without the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that our faith is futile, it's meaningless, this is just a big charade, but, but the resurrection is true, that Jesus left the tomb empty, that he, he came up from the dead by the power of God, and now he is seated at your right hand, interceding for us. And so we have all the reason to worship as we profess faith today that Christ is praying for us, he's interceding for us, he's reigning for us, he's near to us in our weakness. And so we have all the reason to have hope in light of the resurrection that one day that we too will be with Christ in the resurrection, that there will be new life, perfect life, a life that we all crave and long for. And so we thank you for that reality. We thank you for uh, just this time that we have to be together, to, to come to your word and feast on it um, that as people of the resurrection, one of, one of the distinguishing characteristics is that we love your word, that this word gives us life. And so we come to eat and to find life in this text today. Would you help me communicate your gospel this morning? I'm a weak man, I need your help. So would the thoughts of my mind be your thoughts? Would, would my tongue speak forth your words? Would my heart have your heart. Father God, be near to us now as we open up this text. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, I realize as scripture was being read, you were probably thinking, this is not your typical Resurrection Sunday text, right? Widows and orphans, sojourners. I mean, it's Seems kind of bizarre, right? There's no, there was no re- mention of the resurrection. There was no mention of Jesus. Right? We're not even in the, in the New Testament. And I realize that if you were to do a survey, probably 98% of the churches in the world right now are opening up their Bibles to passages like 1 Corinthians 15 that talk about the resurrection or Matthew 28 where, where they're specifically speaking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and I believe that we do indeed need to study those passages. We need to hear the eyewitness accounts of true historical facts. We need to wrestle with the implications of the resurrection and what God has done to bring Christ from death to life and what it means for us. But as I was getting ready, as we were thinking ahead and planning for this Sunday, knowing that, that there's probably gonna be some visitors here and more than likely, there's going to be some people that only come to church on Christmas and Easter. And so 
what we were thinking was that if you only come to church on Christmas and Easter, you really only hear two parts of the Bible, right? The birth account and you hear the resurrection account. And so we thought we'd spice it up a little bit. And we, we talk a little bit from Exodus 22 and 23. And, and the other part of that is that we've been, as a church, we've been going through the book of Exodus together for the last several months. That we've actually been almost... 30 weeks now in the book of Exodus. And that's kind of how we do it at Sacred City Church. We take a book of the Bible and we preach exegetically through it, going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, unpacking it so we can get a full account of God's word and his counsel. And so what we decided to do was to continue on with our passage uh, in Exodus. Um, So today I have the task of preaching the resurrection from Exodus 22 and 23. And and you might be asking, how? How in the world are you going to... connect this sojourner, widow, orphan to the resurrection. And I was actually asking myself the same question earlier this week, and I was thinking, man, why, I should have just gone with, Exodus, or gone with 1 Corinthians 15, made it easier for myself. But that's not how we do things. We like to make things hard on myself. So in order for this to make sense, connecting the resurrection with Exodus 22, 23, there's one thing that we all need to understand here is that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is so powerful that it not only changes the future for the believers, right, and that there's life after death, or life after life after death is what the resurrection is, but it's so powerful that it goes back and actually transforms what has happened in the past. It gives, gives past realities a new meaning. There's a new light shed on things. We gain new understanding through history because of the resurrection, See, Jesus makes this clear to us that that as he was resurrected, there's an account from um, uh, Luke 24 where Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, is walking on the road to Emmaus and he's talking to two men who are kind of recounting um, what's happened from Good Friday where Jesus was actually killed and put in a tomb. And he's recounting this What's happened this weekend, and Jesus is walking with these men. This is the resurrected Jesus, and he's listening to what they're saying. And, and at one point, Jesus starts to explain to them that he is the one who was killed, but now he's alive. And so he explains to them that all of Scripture, from, from the beginning of Genesis up to the end of the New Testament, is all about him, that it all is pointing to Jesus. And this is what he told the men. He said, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all of scriptures things concerning himself. So what that means is that the Old Testament and even the book of Exodus is really all about Jesus because of the life, death, and resurrection. It makes more sense of the Old Testament, of Exodus. It's like a composer who uses a motif, a motif, to, to hint toward the true melody of, of a composition, right? He'll use little um, uh, arrangements of notes and how they go to, to, to point to the full-on melody that'll come later on in a movement. This is sort of what, G, what God did in, in his narration of the story where he was using these motifs throughout the, the Old Testament to point toward the true melody of Jesus. And so this is what it looks like, just to give you an idea specifically in the book of Exodus. It begins with God making a promise to elect a people as his own. His people are then taken into slavery and ruled by a godless and cruel Lord, which is foreshadowing the rule of sin and death. Unable to save themselves, God uh, himself intervenes to redeem his people from slavery and deliver them into freedom to worship him alone by his miraculous hand, which is foreshadowing Jesus' death and resurrection 
After taking his people out of Egypt, God works with his people, his work with his people continues as he seeks to get the Egypt out of his people. So, so the people are out of Egypt now, but there's still a sense of Egypt that resides in their hearts. And so God is working that Egypt out of them. That, that, that points forward to sanctification, that process that we all experience where we're becoming more beautiful in Christ, that God is removing the sinful parts of our hearts out of us. But resisting God's continuing attempt to, to lead his people as he desires, the people grumble against God and against Moses, and they long to go back to Egypt, which foreshadows this tension that we wrestle with as believers of, of living in the world and not in the world, of, of being part of the kingdom of the world, but longing for the kingdom of God. And so in light of this, when we, when we put these two stories and overlap them over each other, we see that really the Exodus story points us to the realities, spiritual realities of Christ. The entirety of the Exodus story is pointing us to Jesus and the true deliverance God would bring to his people through him. And so as we look through our text, through the lens of this gospel of what Jesus has accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection, we see that this text leads us to Jesus. In fact, every Sunday that we rightfully approach the word of God, rightfully understand it, rightfully, it's rightfully preached, it's going to feel like a resurrection Sunday, right? In some ways, today is no different than any other Sunday. We're always gonna come back to Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. But today, we're gonna do it as we go through Exodus 22 and part of 23. And so this is not only to show you how the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus brings new meaning to this text, but it's to show you that in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, this has profound implications on your life. This changes the way that you live. This changes the way that you interact with other people, specifically the vulnerable and the weak and the oppressed. So that's where we're going today. And so in order to kind of reframe the story of Exodus here for you, I, I need to just hit this again because I realize there's people that are joining us for the first time that the story of Exodus has been unfolding. We're right in the middle of it. It's like walking into a movie uh, an hour and a half into it. You, you miss some stuff, but here, I'll, I'll get you caught up. So at the beginning of the story, God's people are enslaved to Pharaoh. And, and this is cruel, brutal slavery, and God hears the cries of his people and he acts in mighty ways to free them from the oppression of Pharaoh and Egypt and to bring them out to a place where they can worship him and be devoted to him. And so God has done this. You're probably familiar with the parting of the Red Sea. That's a story that, that many of us are familiar with. Um, and so God parts the Red Sea, brings his people through them, brings them to a new place. But they're still waiting to go to the land that God has promised them. They're waiting to be in their home that they are longing for. And so in this wilderness here, they're trying to figure out what exactly does it mean to live as God's people. And so to, to tell them, to explain to them, to give them a picture of what it looks like, God gives them the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. And then following in chapters 21, 22, and 23, God builds out on the Ten Commandments, not, not necessarily adding to them, but explaining them, putting flesh on them, that this is the implications of what it looks like to love your neighbor. And so in chapters 21 through 23, they're told what it looks like for them to live differently. And this really provides a huge contrast to the way that the people were living while they were in Egypt. Because... 
unlike Egypt, which was all about promoting the power of Pharaoh and his agenda, God's people will be a people who protect the powerless. See, unlike Pharaoh, God cares about the weak and the marginalized. Pharaoh exploited these people. Pharaoh took an advantage of them. He, he ran them into the ground. But God says, no, that's not what it's like in my society. That's not what it's like in a grace-filled culture. We are going to protect the powerless. Because God is a powerful God who cares about the powerless, he is creating a society that protects the powerless and values Justice, and so we see what's happened in in verses uh, in chapters twenty one through twenty three. Even back in chapters twenty, this is profound. This is something that's never happened before. Never ever in the history of the world has there been a culture that valued the weak and the vulnerable in a society. And now God is creating social justice. He's inventing it here. It's not a man-made invention here. The social justice is an is an idea that comes from God. See, evolution would actually promote the opposite. Evolution is, is the strong advance, the strong capitalize on the vulnerability of, of the weak so that they can promote themselves. But this is not what God, the economy, the social economy that God is setting up. He's setting up an economy that values those who are weak and vulnerable. Now, last week, we saw that God has a heart for all people, regardless of their um, social standing, their race, their economic status, their influence, or their station in life. This is because God created all people with dignity, value, and worth. And so we saw how this plays out in employee-employee relationships with how God protects the women and the children in the society, specifically unborn, how God protects the elderly. And so where we're going now is we're skipping over the end of chapter 21 and the beginning of 22 because this really sort of continues the same sort of principles um, as it applies to um, property, how to, to rightly compensate someone when you damage their property. And we're coming into this text where God shifts his focus to the sojourners, the widows, and the orphan, right? These are the people who are likely to be the most neglected and overlooked people in a society, So God is creating a new society, a new culture that protects these people, that looks out for these people, not just just doesn't oppress them or make life harder for them, but actually helps them out, to lift them up. So we'll be in Exodus 22 here. So if you wanna open your Bibles, your Bible apps, uh, we'll be in Exodus 22, verse 21, or it'll be on the screen here too if you wanna follow along. Let's, Let's read Verse 21, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppressor. Now, what is a sojourner? A sojourner is an outsider who permanently has made their way in, okay? Think, if you put it in, into our terms, think immigrant or, or a refugee, a person who lives in a place um, semi-permanently, long-term, that isn't their original home. See, this is a person, could be a person who finds asylum with God's people, right? They, maybe their own people want them dead. They're fleeing for their life. And so they've come to the people of Israel and they find protection among God's people. 
So they're, in a sense, a refugee. Perhaps this could be someone who, is, uh, who sympathizes with God's people, that they, that they see the way that God's people live together, the way that they love one another. They, they've heard of Yahweh, the God of the people of Israel, and they have faith in, in God now, and so they adopt this new lifestyle. They, they sort of emerge, immerse themselves in Hebrew life and faith, where they're essentially converts. Now, to be a sojourner, to be someone in this position is sort of risky business. To leave your original people group, to leave your people, is tricky. Because not only are you leaving your people, when you, what would happen if you left your original people? It's very likely that you would be disowned by them, that any sort of comforts that you had of, of a home, uh, of home life, of, of, of a support system, now are, are gone, you don't have anyone to fall back on. In fact, we see this with Muslims that convert to Christianity today. That, that if they come to faith and they profess faith in Jesus, what happens a lot of times is that their family disowns them. They turn their back on them. They're left abandoned. So then, then the next part is, so it's risky and, and you lose the people that you're coming from. But there's also a risk factor in that you, you don't know for sure if you'll be received into this new community. There's always a risk that tribalism, nationalism, or racism could bar you from entering into this new culture, this new community. If that were the case, you'd be a person stuck in between two worlds. You've already left this place, and, and now you don't quite fit in here, and so you're, you're always sort of a, a man in the middle, never having a place to call home. But even if a sojourner were to be received into this new place that they're longing to be part of, there's still quite a bit of, of vulnerability that they would experience with this. There'd be a lang- more than likely, there'd be a language barrier. They would be in an unfamiliar culture where they don't understand how things work. They don't know what the rules of society are. They don't have any connections. They don't have any support system to help them along their way. See, I think if you ever go on vacation outside of the United States or maybe into some places that are completely different than the Midwest, you kind of get a taste of this, right? When my wife and I went on our honeymoon, we went to Mexico, and, and while we were on the resort, everyone spoke English and we felt home, but, but we ventured off a couple times into the, the touristy areas and, and even ventured into places that weren't quite so touristy, and you just sort of feel out of it. You feel vulnerable. You, you don't know what's going on. You don't know... One, the language is hard. I mean, I, I took two years of Spanish in high school, but that didn't help a lot because I was sleeping most of the time. Um, you just, you feel like an outsider. You, you don't belong. You, you, you feel vulnerable. Not to mention, so like if, if they're in this place, they feel vulnerable. There's, there's this language barrier. There's social, how things work. But then if, if they are actually immersed in the culture, they're still rights that they don't have like a natural citizen would have. A, a sojourner couldn't own land, and because they didn't own land, they couldn't partake in, in the legal process. So they were likely to be sued or taken advantage of in a legal situation. 
So in order to protect these vulnerable sojourners, God commands his people to treat them right and oppress them. He says, you shall not wrong a sojourner and oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. See, God is contrasting what these people experienced in Egypt, and he is giving them a new picture of what life should be like for a sojourner. He says, this this oppression that the sojourners face will not be so among my people. My ways will be different. My people will treat the weak and vulnerable different. There will be protection for the powerless. So God creates, again, a society that, eval- that elevates the weak, that protects them and keeps them from being susceptible to the oppression of the powerful. And the same mentality continues with verse 22. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. God's heart for the weak and vulnerable expands to the widow and the orphan. Now they're vulnerable because not only do these people suffer relational loss, right? They, if, if, they, if the widow, she's lost a husband. If it's a fatherless child, he's, he's lost his daddy. So there's relational loss that's experienced here. But they're also vulnerable in in the sense that they've lost their livelihood and protection. See, men functioned at this time in the ancient world, they they functioned as the provider and the protector of their home, that they provided financially, that they provided legal protection, that if, if they were to go to court, it would be the man who would represent his family in court. And now, without her husband... It made life very difficult for the widow to support herself. If she were able to find work, it would typically be something very low paying that would hardly make ends meet. Especially, this is the case, if she's old, that she can no longer work. She's just kind of out there by herself. So she's seen as very vulnerable. Plus with the legal matter issue, she's even more susceptible to the powerful coming in and making things hard for her. And now orphans and, and the fatherless share a similar vulnerability where they, they also lack the protection. They also lack the provision that a, a father could offer. See, if, if they were fatherless, perhaps they had their mother, but they were in the, still in the same boat. But if this child were orphan that has no mother or father, this child would have to fend for themselves. If not fending for themselves, they relied on the charity of someone else to take them in and to look after them. And without guidance and protection from a father or family structure, this child could be easily misguided. They could find themselves in bad situations and a life of oppression. Now, if these people were to be oppressed, the, the weak and the vulnerable, the widows, the orphans, the fatherless, the sojourner, if they were to be oppressed and taken advantage of, it would likely be at the hands of those who are already in power. Last week, we talked about how power is a God-given thing that's meant to promote the human flourishing of all people, not just one group. So power is not given to the powerful to promote the powerful. Power is given to people that in all may flourish because of it. And so what we see here, if the powerful are oppressing those who are weak and vulnerable, this is a grievous mishandling of power and is very upsetting to God. And the next couple of verses make this very clear. Look at verses 23 and 24. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath 
will burn, and I will kill you with a sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. Right? Nothing says Happy Easter like that, right? See, what this communicates here, this is certainly a strong warning against oppressing the weak and the vulnerable. But there are two things about God here, about God's character that we need to see. It's very important. The first one is this, that God's ears are open to those who cry out to him. He says in verse 23, if you, if you mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. God's ears are open to those who cry out to him. His ears are not stuffed. His back is not turned to the weak and the vulnerable. He's eager to hear their cry for help. So this is good news. If you feel vulnerable, if you feel powerless and oppressed, know that God hears your cries, that your prayers are not turned away, that he will surely hear your cries. Psalm 145 says that God will be near to all who call on him. So that's the first thing that we need to see about God here, that his ears are open to those who are weak and vulnerable, the ones who are typically shut out and pushed to the side and marginalized, that we can take comfort in the fact that we have the ear of the powerful God. Now in this, we see mercy God helping those who can't help themselves. Now, the second thing that we need to see here is how God responds to such oppression. That he actually opposes those who are oppressing and mistreating the, value, the, the, the vulnerable. God takes action against such wrongdoing and he says his wrath will burn against those who are doing the wrong. These unjust actions don't go unnoticed. There will be punishment for those who oppress, and the pain of their actions will actually be flipped on them so that they will be killed by the sword, that, that, that their family will become or- widows and orphans. See, the, the people who are doing the oppression will become those who they are oppressing. Now, what we see here in these two things It seems like there's a tension here. We see God's mercy and we see God's justice. Now, justice involves both protecting those who need mercy and also punishing those who are doing the oppressing, those who are doing the wrong. Now, God holds both of these in tension. His ears is turned towards those who are oppressed. He gives mercy to those, but he also punishes and protects, specifically punishes those who are doing the oppressing. Now, this is completely contrary to how other gods in the ancient world related to the weak and the oppressed. Many gods were the ones who were doing the oppressing so that they could gain more power. Look at Pharaoh, for example. He was viewed as a god. He would oppress the weak. He would push them down so that he could be elevated. But God does not do it like this. Yahweh's ways are different. See, God is a God of mercy and justice. He gives mercy to those who cannot help themselves. He hears the cries of the weak and he aids them while offering justice. 
He rights the wrongs by punishing those who oppress the weak. And his wrath, his just wrath, burns against those who are doing wrong. See, this means that people don't get away with doing the wrong, that their actions will be dealt with. It's not swept under the rug. And the reason this is is because without mercy and justice, the society that God is trying to create will fall apart. See, this is something that's completely different than what's happened before, a society of mercy and justice. And throughout Scripture, we can see that God's heart is filled with mercy toward the vulnerable, the sojourner, the orphan, the widow, and his just wrath is upon those who oppress. We see this in Deuteronomy 10, 18. It tells us that God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner. Psalm 145, 9 says, the Lord watches over the sojourner. He upholds the widows and the fatherless. Now, if anyone knows this to be true, it is the people of Israel. They have experienced this firsthand. Now, if you skip down to... um, Exodus 23, verse 9, says this, you shall not oppress a sojourner, and he's gonna, this is the reason why. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. See, God gives this command again. He's commanding his people to live a certain way, and he's giving them the reason for doing so. He's saying, remember where you came from. Alan Cole is a commentator on this. He's talking about why God would command his people to live in such a way. And this is why. Love for the sojourner is not based on mere humanitarianism, but on a fellow feeling which comes from a deep personal experience of God's saving grace. See, God is telling Israel to remember their own personal experience when they were sojourners in the land of Egypt, when they were the ones who were weak and vulnerable and they encountered God's saving grace. See, he jogs their memory to months earlier. We're not talking years or decades, months earlier when they themselves were sojourners in Egypt, where they were not treated well, where they were taken advantage of for 400 years, where they faced brutal oppression, where they face suffering, long days of hard work and harsh beatings. Pharaoh made life miserable for these people. See, but this wasn't just a physically difficult thing for them to endure. It was taxing emotionally, right? You see this, you know the heart. It means that you know what this felt like, that you can relate to this feeling. You know the heartache, You know the the heartache of what it feels like to be misplaced, to not belong somewhere, to feel like a second-class citizen, to have longings for a home but have nowhere to call home. He's saying you know what it does to your spirit to be misplaced like this. It sinks you in a a deep hole of depression and it, it seems like there's no way out, right? For 400 years, Day after day after day, the same cycle. So God is calling them to remember Egypt, remember where they came from, but even more so, God is calling them to remember what God has done for them. He's saying, remember what I did to bring you out of Egypt. See, when when it seemed like there was no way out, for 400 years, God made a way. 
God saying to them that you were vulnerable, you were oppressed, and I acted with my mighty hand to deliver you. It wasn't you who delivered you. It was God who delivered you. And we see God's wrath burning against Pharaoh and the people of Egypt as they were devoured in the Red Sea. And it's in that moment when God was compelled by mercy, when he, it, it was all kind of prompted when God heard the cries of his people. He heard their groanings when their lives were so difficult in Egypt. And God acted. He acted in mercy, but it also came with justice. That God's wrath burned against Pharaoh as he swallowed them up and devoured them in the Red Sea. That God brought forth justice in devouring Egypt. Now, really, when we take a step back and just look at these five verses that we have before us today, really the main thrust here is this. What God is saying to his people is this. Remember the powerless because I remembered you when you were powerless. See, this is a command that God has for his people that's rooted in their firsthand experience of God's saving grace and God's power in delivering them from Egypt. Because God is the one who has acted to uphold the Israelites when they were sojourners. They are to do the same towards other sojourners that they see among them. See, every every time they see a sojourner among themselves, it should sort of trip a memory. It should take them back to the day that they were in Egypt, when they were groaning desiring to be set free every time. And that should fill their heart with mercy and justice, that they work to to promote the flourishing of people, but also that they have a heart for these people because they know what it was like. They know the heart of the sojourner. See, what, what God is calling them to do here is not just remember in sort of a mental ascent or a mental rec. Recollection. What God is telling them to do in, in remembering, it's meant to produce a memory-induced action. To take action for those who are weak and vulnerable. So he's commanding them, do not oppress the weak and the vulnerable, but there's more to it than that. It's, not, it's just not a matter of, of not oppressing. It's a matter of fighting for their rights to work for their welfare because that's exactly what God did for them. He, God could have just left his people. All right, I delivered you. You guys are free to do what you want. But God doesn't do that. He's working for his people to give them a, a better life. See, this is how the mercy of God is meant to transform the world, that as we experience God's mercy, it spills forth from us, and we, we offer that to others. See, remember the powerless because I remembered you when you were powerless. This is a command that's just as relevant for us today as it was for the Israelites thousands of years before. See, today, the call for us is the same that we need to remember where we have come from and we need to remember what God has done to deliver us and rescue us from sin and death. Just as Israel was under the oppression of Egypt, we have been under the oppression of sin. The death and the grave has been terrorizing us ever since sin entered into the world. 
See, what sin is, I, I think, when we talk about sin, our culture thinks of it as sort of this naughty, oh, I, I, I shouldn't do this, but, but I can't resist sort of thing. Sin is, is far more uh, destructive than, than what culturally we, we, we understand. See, sin is what prevents us from living the life that God intended us to live, and it destroys life in every respect, spiritually, relationally, and physically. Sin came into the world and messed everything up for us. Instead of being deeply satisfied in God, we're always looking to something or someone else to give us the joy that we desire. Instead of of our relationships being joyful and exciting, they're hard. Marriages, we see this in marriage, we feel the strain, feel this in parenting. Relationships are difficult. Physically, our bodies don't do what they're supposed to do. They wear out. And we eventually die. See what sin does. Sin makes us spiritual sojourners. It oppresses us from living the life that we were made to live. And in one sense, we're victims, right? That sin is sort of imposed upon us. We can't escape it. It's, it's controlling us in a way that we can't quite figure out. And so we can, we can relate to Israelite, that the people who felt helpless and crying out to God for help. And so in the same way, we can cry out to God and appeal to his mercy, knowing that he hears our cries for help. But sin is complex, okay? We're not just victims. That we actually take part in sin as well that we have become the oppressor, that we become sinners. We are the ones who are doing wrong. And so to appeal to God's mercy would mean that we invoke God's justice as well. Now, as a sinner, right, someone who's been sinned against, someone who feels the oppression of sin, but also as someone who, who's sinning actively, to, to call, for, call out for God's mercy means that his justice will come too. It leaves us in a tight spot. How are we ever to be freed from sin if it means that we are the ones who face God's just wrath as well? Right? It seems like there's no way out. It seems like this is just the way it's gonna be. We're gonna be stuck in this tight spot. But that's not so. God has made a way for us just as he made a way through the Red Sea for the Israelites. He sent his son See, God put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He sent Jesus, the perfect man who lived a sinless life, never giving in to sin. See, where we are the ones who sin and do wrong, Jesus never did wrong once. And while Jesus was sinless, he still was afflicted by sin in every way, just as we are. He knew what it was like to live vulnerably in the world. He felt the relational sting of what it was like to be sinned against. He felt the hurt and pain inflicted by other sinners. And he felt what it was like to live in a failing body. But it wasn't until he was hung on a cross that he would feel the searing loss of his relationship with his heavenly father, where he would feel that spiritual disconnect from God that we all feel. See, he was there on the cross where Jesus felt the worst that sin had to offer, that he was forsaken, that God turned his back on him, that Jesus became sin 
and God unleashed his just wrath on Jesus. Just think, Jesus, he's forsaken by God. His friends have abandoned him. People have been ridiculing him and mocking him as he's dying, as he's vulnerable, hanging on a cross. And on top of that, physically, the torment and agony of what he felt on that cross. Jesus, if you want a picture of the damage that sin causes, all you need to do is look at the cross. See, it's there on the cross where the just wrath of God comes down on Jesus, where he took the sword and he did it so, he did it so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus faced the just wrath of God so that we would not have to face it ourselves, that he took our place for us. So therefore, because the justice of God has been satisfied, the wrath of God has been dealt with, we, the sinners, can cry out to God for mercy. See, the cross shows us these two attributes of God, his, his justice as he unleashes wrath upon his son for the sins of all mankind and his mercy in the forgiveness of sins and the new life that Jesus offered for those who are needy and vulnerable. See, but if we just end with the cross, if we just stop there, we would still be stuck. We would be dead in our sins. Without the resurrection, without the power that that God used to raise Christ from the dead, we would still be in our sins. And so God, being being full of mercy and full of grace, raises Christ from the dead. Jesus swallowed up sin and death once and for all, and we who put our faith in him are now raised with him. You see, we currently live in a a time of in-between, right? Sin is still here. We feel the effects of sin, but here's the good news. Because of the resurrection, because there is new life to come, there is an expiration date on sin, death, and the grave. See, this is good news for sinners. That by faith in Christ, sinners can find God's mercy because Jesus absorbed the wrath, the just wrath of God. This is the good news. This is what we celebrate on Resurrection Sunday. And in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, in light of what God has done to deliver us from where we've come from and to bring us into new life, this changes us. This changes the way that we we view the, the weak and the vulnerable. Church, I pray that we would be people who daily remembers where we came from and what Christ has done to save us. And as we live in this reality, we'll be people who remember the weak and the vulnerable because we were the ones who were spiritually weak and vulnerable. That when we could do nothing for ourselves, that our, no, ma- no matter how much good things that we've done in our life, no matter how moral or good of a person we've been, we could not get ourselves out of the rut of sin and God came in and he lifted us out. And so in light of where we have come from in our spiritual weakness and, and the power of the resurrection that we now have in Christ, that we would be mindful of those who are weak and vulnerable. That we'd be mindful of those who are weak and vulnerable spiritually as well, to be heralds of good news and proclaim the good news of Christ's life, death, 
and resurrection, that there is grace for sinners because Christ has absorbed the wrath of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you on this morning for what you have done. We acknowledge where we've come from. We know that sin is a terrible, destructive, life-destroying disease that leaves us oppressed and without, and you saw our need, you heard our cries, and you met that need. You stepped in for us and sent your son to live a perfect life, to die a substitutionary death in our place, to take on your wrath, to face the sword for us so that that we can cry out to you for help and that we can find help in Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. Pray that you would help us to remember. Help us to remember where we've come from and what you've done to save us and help us to to look forward to where you're leading us toward, to new life in the new heavens, new earth, where where we will be with you forever, that all of our deepest longings and joys and desires will be fulfilled in you as we spend eternity with Christ as he reigns and rules for us. We thank you, Father, for for Christ's body that was broken and his blood that was shed in our place. And as we come to the table today, Father, we eat and drink remembering Christ, remembering his sacrifice, and remembering his victory over the grave. Hallelujah. We thank you, Father, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.